Gang of Jang sounds of then 20, uh, 19 and a half past 10. You might remember last week uh, one of the postcards from the Millennium to say that word a lot of times in the next few years. I'm going to have to practice. We, uh, we t- took a look at 1066 with the Battle of Hastings and Carol Cusack walked us through the history of that time. Well, I thought we'd uh, move slightly away from Europe today and also move into the next century. And early this millennium, there were eight major campaigns to take control of the Holy Lands surrounding Jerusalem. And one of the most vicious of these crusades occurred in the 12th century. This was the Third Crusade. It was between 1189 and 1192. And it involved three players, essentially. The King of England, Richard the Lionheart, and uh, the young Saladin. Sorry, that's two players. (laughs) The King of England was Richard the Lionheart. And uh, the young Saladin, who was of Kurdish descent, and he ruled a vast area of the Arab world. He was essentially the uh, the Muslim leader in that part of the world. And Carol Cusack from the Department of Religion at the, the University of Sydney Sydney joins me again this morning. Good morning, Carol. Hi. We liked it so much last week, we thought we'd, ha- you'd, we'd have you back. Well, it's always fun. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Let's look at the 12th century and look at this particular crusade, the Third Crusade. Why was that so significant? Well, crusade had started the century before, so it was... Um, it had its roots in the 11th century. Uh, Pope Urban II had preached a sermon, to, sermon at Clermont in 1095, telling all of the European aristocracy that if they really cared for their faith, they would rest the possession of the holy places, as they were referred to, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the, the places that Jesus had lived in and, and worked in, he, that they would rest control of those places from the Muslims who had moved into um, Palestine and had established control over those areas. And this launched the First Crusade. It was amazingly successful. Uh, quite um, a small number of Europeans really managed to conquer a number of significant cities and set up European-style administration and government. And what happened after that, all of the rest of those campaigns that you were mentioning nearly always were to shore up the possessions that mm. Europe had managed to win in the uh, Middle East. And the Third Crusade was necessary because one of the worst defeats, you know, absolutely the worst defeats known in medieval history had happened in the year 1187, before, just before the Third Crusade began. And that was the Battle of Hattin, it's called. It happened on July the 3rd, 1187. And it was because the commanders, European commanders in the Holy Land, particularly a Frenchman called Guy de Lusignan, were really, really incompetent. And they managed to get themselves on high ground with no water and then were encircled completely by the army of Saladin. And the next day, the um, Saladin's army didn't just fight them, they set fire to the dry grass there. And of course, these um, knights were all wearing armour and basically they cooked. Um, those who wanted their lives begged for mercy and, and su- surrendered immediately. But Hatton was a terrible blow to the pride of Europe, you know, because Saladin had virtually at that point reconquered the whole of the Holy Land. There were mm. only four cities left in the control of the Europeans. And so the Third Crusade was necessary to go over there and back up and get mm. the European presence, the Christian presence. They thought of themselves more as Christians. So they were, in a sense, colonising this, this heathen part of the world that didn't have Christianity. Was that the way they thought of it or was it more territory that they wanted for, for trade? It was a very complex issue. It was both because one of the reasons why originally crusaders were sent to the Holy Land was that there was a lot of superfluous nobility 
in Europe who didn't, and there weren't lands for them to inherit. And so one of Pope Urban's ideas had been if we send them away, you know, they can make their fortune somewhere else and they can acquire land, you know, it's all just lying there and mm. it only belongs Nobody to infidels, <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but also there was strong religious fervour. Some of the crusader leaders were tremendously pious men and, you know, really believed they were serving God mm. in order uh, to take these these sacred sites away from the uh, infidels, mm. as they tended to refer to them. What did happen then to the when in that period where the Europeans came back and tried to claim back some of the territory that they lost? Well, as you were saying, there were three players um, in the Third Crusade. The third one's Philip Augustus of France. Ah. You probably just forgot him <laughs> accidentally. I did slip that um, one. Yeah. Well, what happened was Hatton. The news of Hatton came back to Europe, you know, it used to take a long time for news of things to, to travel. So probably it took about two months to three months for the news of the huge defeat at Hatton in 1187 mm. to make it to the West. And then there was this kind of fervour of people amongst the Western royalty and they all said, right, we're all going to take the cross, as it was called, which is kind of religious vow, and go over to the Holy Land and reconquer the territories that we'd won. The first to go was Frederick Barbarossa, who was the Emperor of Germany, but unfortunately he was a very old man at that time and he drowned in a river in Cilicia, falling off his horse. In armour, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you sort of didn't have much of a chance if you fell no. into a river in full armour. You, know, you weren't going to swim to liberty, particularly since he was, I think, in his 70s. Um, and that meant that the German effort, which was the first response, we're going to go and help, fell apart. So at that point, it was up to France and to England. And of course, they were traditional enemies. You know, they'd never really got on. And Philip Augustus, the King of France, theoretically was the feudal overlord of Richard of England. Um, and they had a kind of shaky friendship as a result of political tensions. But eventually, both of them set out to go. And they're both quite glittering and remarkable figures. Uh, Richard the Lionheart, of course, is a sort of classic medieval hero king to the English. Mm. In fact, in a lot of ways, he was quite a bad king. But even, even though he got this name, the Lionheart, because of his bravery. Yeah, courage. But mm. courage doesn't necessarily always make a good king, you know. He was um, king of England for, well, a decade, and he was only in England for about six months out of that ten years. He hardly ever did anything there. He, he had little regard for his subjects. He was much more a death and glory kind mm. of man, which is one of the reasons why he went down in the in the legends. You know, Cra crash or cut, crash through. Exactly, actually. <laughs> beautiful. We've had prime ministers like that. We have. <laughs> Philip Augustus was a better ruler. Um, and in fact, he went home from the crusade earlier once a few sort of key strategic places had been recovered. Um, Richard the Lionheart, of course, was intrigued by the culture that he, he saw over there. You know, you said earlier, well, we're taking ourselves away a little bit from, from Europe. The crusader kingdoms came into contact, you know, on a daily basis with medieval Islamic culture. Mm. And it was in many ways much more sophisticated than what they were accustomed to. It had better standards of medicine. Their palaces were more comfortable. Uh, Bathhouses, people were cleaner. They ate much better foods, fresher and more varied with more interesting spices. They had a higher level of cultivation in terms of learning. The average, um, well, European king at this time, say Richard the Lionheart, um, was no intellectual, you mm. know, didn't read much, wasn't greatly interested in those sorts of things, whereas um, the average Muslim leader was a good deal mm. more cultivated. So, so did Richard appreciate that when he got to this area? Well, he found the whole 
setup very, very intriguing. In fact, he went around a lot of, not just the Holy Land itself, he started off by conquering Cyprus, which was very important. Um, his sister Joanna was married to the King of Sicily, so they stopped there. Um, his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was by that time, well, in her 80s, mm. no, not, not quite, in her 70s, uh, travelled with him, so she was a very remarkable and kind of colourful... He had a colourful entourage mm. of people. And he was very taken with Saladin, whom all historians, even the most bigoted and prejudiced European historians, admit was a, a soul of chivalry and, and, you know, a sort of mm. perfectly knightly and courteous person. So, you know, it was quite a, a lesson to discover that these barbarians, these infidels, weren't really barbarians in fact in many ways were rather more sophisticated and, and, and civilized perhaps. civilized mm. than the west mm. yes so, so what happened did they did they meet head to head in a battle? never totally um, richard's specialty was siege warfare see the battle of hatton had proved to them that getting caught out in the desert was just hopeless it wasn't worth doing mm. uh, you would lose too many men and the arabs because they were familiar with the territory uh, didn't seem to mind the scorching heat as much they would always have the advantage so Richard worked specifically with sieges and his two big ones when he was in, in the Holy Land were the Siege of Accra and the Siege of Jerusalem and uh, both of these he conducted very, very successfully. Mm. A certain degree of ruthlessness. On one occasion he executed about 3,000 hostages in one day but it was necessary to do that to prove to your opponents that you were to be taken seriously, you know, mm. that you weren't actually going to back off. So they didn't keep prisoners of war in those in that day, essentially? Well, if they were valuable. Mm. For example, after Hatton, Saladin captured Guy de Lusignan, the, the French leader, and that was worthwhile because he's a bargaining chip. You know, you can get money for him and you can also get diplomatic or, or um, uh, treaty advantages. But ordinary people were generally not highly regarded. Um, some of the historians of the Crusades, the people who were eyewitnesses, some of whom are Muslim and some of whom are Christian, often clergymen, um, have mentioned for a number of the Crusades that the streets of Jerusalem were running with blood. Mm. You know, you were walking and you were ankle deep in it, mm. which is, you know, pretty hard for us to cope with, I think. But oh, yes. The, uh, just, we've, we haven't got long to go, just a, really only a minute or so, Carol, but just the, uh, the upshot of that, of that Third Crusade, what was it essentially? Well, it was a recovery of territory for the Europeans. They, did, they did recover that territory. They recovered mm. some territory. But what really made it better for them, well, made it made it more successful. As you said, it finished in 1192. On March the 3rd, 1193, Saladin died in Damascus and he was really the rallying point for the Islamic world. He was mm. tremendously charismatic and astonishingly gifted and no leader arose to take on his mantle. Mm. So there was a hiatus where the Europeans had re-established something of their dominance in the Middle East. Mm. But as you say, that was, the only, that was only the Third Crusade and then there were a whole lot more that kind of got worse and dwindled mm. away till eventually the European presence was extinguished entirely. Completely, yeah. yes. But the troubles remain in the Middle East, sadly. Indeed. Well, some people trace the origins of uh, especially Christian-Muslim hostility to the mm. 11th and 12th centuries when the crusading fervour was so strong. Mm, yes. It goes back so far, doesn't it? Do you wonder whether it can ever be eradicated, that, that kind of history? Yeah. Mm. Carol Cusack, once again, it's been enlightening to have you here. Thank you so much. Carol Cusack's from the Department of Religion at the University of Sydney, uh, just giving us a little insight there into the Third Crusade in our, uh, in our weekly uh, segment now, Postcards from the Millennium. It's